We are going to look at uh, Acts 18.24 through 19.20. We're going to circle back and hit a little bit of the end of Acts 18 uh, this week. So if you'll open your Bibles or bulletins and follow along with me as we read the scripture. So here now the reading of God's word. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, went to, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the repentance, baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that through your spirit and through your word, our hearts would be open to today's passage of scripture. I pray that we would see you working mightily then in that time, just as you work mightily today. I pray that you would help me as I preach this text, that it would be clear and that it would be accurate to the text, and that it would point us to Jesus Christ so that we may see his grace and power. 
Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Alexei Anonenko, Valery Bespilov, and Boris Baranov. Three men that I venture most of us in this room have never heard their names. Yet the world owes them a significant debt of gratitude. Together, they're known as the Chernobyl Three. On April 26, 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in, in north-central Ukraine was scheduled to undergo a routine safety inspection one night. But things didn't go exactly as planned, because in one of the four reactors, something went terribly wrong, causing a series of explosions, which started to melt the nuclear reactor core. And it caused a release of 400 times the amount of radiation than the atomic bomb that was dropped in Hiroshima. But in spite of the massive damage to that particular reactor building, all of the fires were extinguished with tens of millions of water, of liters of water, within about six hours. But as they continued to survey the damage, several days later, it was discovered that even though the fires were out and things weren't, weren't burning anymore, molten nuclear material had been released from the core and was melting through the floor of the reactor. And it was making its way to these giant pools of water below that had been used to extinguish the fires. So if this lava-like nuclear material made contact with the water below, another nuclear contaminated steam explosion would occur that would likely destroy the other three reactors at Chernobyl, with some estimating that the fallout would leave over half of Europe uninhabitable for over 500,000 years. That's where these three guys come in. The only way to prevent this was that this estimated 20 million liters of water had to be drained from the basement. And the only way to do this was to find a specific set of valves in the flooded basement. At this point, literally millions of lives were at stake across Europe with a world mostly unaware because it was the Soviet Union. But with only rudimentary Soviet-issued wetsuits and flashlights, these three men knowing what was at stake, volunteered to jump into the pitch black, badly damaged basement filled with radioactive water beneath a molten nuclear reactor core that was slowly burning above them to find what one historian called the needle in the haystack. This needle in the haystack that would drain the water above the ceiling, or, or below them, before the ceiling melted. And through all the obstacles they faced in this multi-hour mission, they found that valve and they were successful in averting a much larger disaster than what had already happened. And that's what I want us to look at this morning, is ordinary people having an extraordinary impact. And that's what I want us to see in the text today. I don't want us to ignore what, what Paul or, or, or Apollos are doing in this text, but I want us to look at some of the supporting cast in the text around them, or even some of the, the extras, as we might call them in the stories. But perhaps I need to add a phrase to make the title a little bit more complete. Ordinary people having an extraordinary impact because of a great God. Because any impact we have for Christ in this world isn't because of anything that's good in us or any part of us. It's only because of the Spirit of God that works through us. And we'll see this in three distinct sections this morning. And the first section I want us to take a deeper look at is in Acts 18, 24 through 28. And what I want us to see here is fervency and service. Fervency and service. 
And we see this through the actions of Priscilla and Aquila. And fervency meaning passionate, dedicated, committed, wholehearted. Now, we first encounter Priscilla and Aquila at the beginning of Acts 18, when the emperor, emperor Claudius had forced all of the Jews to leave Rome. So these residents of Italy had, had to leave Rome and leave Italy, and they came just to the east, to the, to the um, peninsula of Greece, and found Corinth, which is in the south-central portion of the Greek peninsula. And Paul stayed with them and, and came across them and worked with them because they were all tent makers. And we know that they further left there and went with Paul and found themselves in Ephesus, which is a port city on the western coast of Turkey, due east from Athens across the Aegean Sea. Now, Dan talked a little bit about Apollos last week, a bold and eloquent man who was competent in teaching the scriptures and, and what he knew of Jesus, but he lacked crucial information. But again, I want to focus on the actions of Priscilla and Aquila and what we know about them today. As far as we know historically, they weren't great orators. They weren't necessarily preachers. They weren't apostles. They weren't anything really that we can tell other than fellow believers who were Paul's companions. But they did an ordinary thing. They took a believer aside to teach him and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, this is what we might call today discipleship. Faithful servants of God taking someone and teaching them and building them up in this knowledge of the scriptures, both by word and by example. And we know that they kept doing this throughout their lives because of what's recorded in the scripture, though their most famous disciple that we read about is named Apollos. In their day-to-day tent-making lives, whatever city they were in, they faithfully shared what they knew of Christ and encouraged other believers and built up the church. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in this extended stay that we read about today in Ephesus. And he was closing 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 19. He says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. They made such an impact during their time in Corinth to be mentioned again to the church there in one of Paul's letters. They were still remembered and loved. And here they were in another city where they had been displaced. They're now in Ephesus, and again, they have another church meeting in their house. You see, this has become a pattern for these two. This is their way of life. This is what they do. They support the church in any way they can with whatever gifts that they have. Everyday believers using what they have to serve the body of Christ. Even though displaced multiple times through, through means that we wouldn't even understand, they kept serving God wherever they were. How else do we know that they kept being fervent and serving God to the end of their lives? Well, they must have made their way back to Rome eventually, because Paul writes to them again in Romans 16.3, where he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Now, we're not told what they did or, or how they risked their lives for Paul. But then in verse 16.4, he says, Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Now, what a large statement to be made about a couple. All of the churches of the Gentiles are thankful for them because of these seemingly ordinary believers. I bring this up again because neither the Bible nor, nor church history has anything written specifically of this couple other than they were faithful servants of God wherever they were. They weren't apostles as far as we know. They weren't orators who were getting up in front of large crowds of, of people in the marketplace and, 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 and speaking to cynics and, and people in, who were skeptical of the word of the Lord. 
They were just faithful servants of God, taking people aside and teaching them what they knew. They just faithfully served and were loved by all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, let's look at their impact on Apollos. In verse 27, we see that when he arrived where he was going, he greatly helped those who had through grace believed. They taught him grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that had become available that he was unaware of. Thus, it enabled Apollos to powerfully refute the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, bear with me a moment. The authorship of the book of Hebrews is a much debated topic. Um, We won't get into all the arguments for or against or who the potential candidates are. However, one of the leading candidates for the authorship of the book of Hebrews is Apollos, given its specific Alexandrian rhetorical style, and we knew he was from Alexandria. So let's just suppose for a minute that Apollos is the author of Hebrews. As Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, said, we'll know when we get to heaven. So we don't know. But let's just assume for a minute that Apollos is the author of Hebrews. See what a great impact to people being faithful to the word of God, to disciple other believers, and to minister to the church can have? An inspired book of the Bible that connects so many dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament and tells us how Christ fulfilled and is superior to each and every one of those things within the Old Covenant. How Christ and the New Covenant are far superior. I think it's easy to sit here as as we hear from Acts week by week to sit there and think, nope, I'm not a Peter. Nope, I'm not a Paul. Nope, I'm I'm not a Stephen. Um, I can't get up and argue in front of a room full of skeptics and have people throw stones at me and all that type of stuff. That's just, that's just not where, where I am in my spiritual life. That's, that's not what my calling is. But you know who every single one of us in this room can be? We can all be Priscilla's and Aquila's. We can all be those ones who point people to Christ, who take other believers aside and build them up more thoroughly in the word by teaching them in the example of how we live. This is something that all of us can do and that all of us should be doing. We can be encouragers of the ministry of the church with whatever gifts it is that we possess. Who knows? That person that you disciple might turn out to be someone that God uses to reach a couple hundred of people and they go establish a church. And then someone in in that number that they have faithfully disciples someone else. And that person then goes on to reach thousands. But do you see what kind of exponential growth can occur through discipleship in such a manner? But it all starts with one person. So what's required to do that? What's required to be like Priscilla and Aquila? Well, one fervency, being passionate, dedicated, and committed wholeheartedly to the work of the gospel and the work of the church. Second, availability. You may be passionate about it, but it's something that's going to take some time. And maybe saying no to something else, it's a little bit more fun to go do something that we know we need to do, to be involved in the community of the church, to be involved in the building up of the church. But three, and most importantly, it takes a knowledge of the scriptures yourself so that you too can take someone else and then disciple them in the word of God and build them up so that both of you can grow together. We can all be fervent in service, ordinary people having an extraordinary impact because of a great God. The second scene Luke writes is, is in Acts 19, 1 through 10. 
And here we find Paul also in Ephesus coming across a group of 12 men who were at the, the same stage as Apollos. They knew the scriptures. They believed in the coming Messiah that John the Baptist proclaimed. And they were baptized into that repentance that John had preached. Yet they didn't know the rest of the story. That the Messiah, Jesus, had actually come. That he'd been crucified, died, and resurrected and ascended to heaven. That the Holy Spirit had come, just as Christ had promised when he was here on earth. And that he came mightily and had given the confirmatory signs of that time, speaking in tongues and prophesying in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And as soon as Paul instructed them in what they lacked, they believed in the rest of the message of Jesus Christ. Just as Peter had done and we read of and Paul had done many times, he laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What these men lacked was the second thing that all of us, if we're going to be ordinary people to do extraordinary things, is to be filled with the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. Through verse 10, we have a specific account of Paul speaking in a synagogue for three months and then continuing in a larger hall for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And we know, and I can't help but think, that these 12 men were a part of Paul's ministry as the gospel of Jesus Christ was spread through such a large geographic area. Now, I do want to make several comments here because there is some disagreement and there's always some confusion on matters related to the Spirit and what filling of the Holy Spirit looks like. The first thing I want to say is at the moment of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Paul makes this very clear in the book of Ephesians, verse one, chapter, or, or chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is clearly teaching here is that we receive all of the Holy Spirit as salvation, not just a portion of the Holy Spirit with the rest to be given to us at some point later. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people saying we, we need a second blessing or at some point in your life you'll receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is then manifested by, by tongues or, or some other sign. These things don't follow with the teachings of Paul and the rest of the New Testament. So what does it actually mean when the Bible says to be, to be filled with the Spirit if we already have the Spirit at the moment of salvation? What this means is it means to be increasingly conformed to the Spirit, to live a life that is more and more in keeping with the character of God. Now, I read this example, and it really resonated me, uh, maybe because I was still smelling paint fumes, uh, after all the work we've been doing across the road for the past two weeks. But I think, it, I think it's a good example. And this person wrote, Imagine you want every room, home in your room painted white. And imagine that you already have a painter standing in the living room ready to paint. The problem is that some of the rooms are locked. The solution is not the painter, to invite the painter in a second time, or perhaps even invite him somehow to be more present than he currently is, whatever that means. What is needed is for the doors to be unlocked so that the painter has full access to work. Although the Holy Spirit comes to live in us fully when we first believe, most of us at the moment of our salvation have parts of our character that are not immediately changed by his presence. These so-called locked rooms that we might have. When the Bible calls us to be filled with the Spirit, then it is calling us essentially to, to unlock those doors 
and joyfully submit every aspect of our character and our life to him so that he can have control over those areas. To be increasingly conformed to the character of Christ who lives in us. In Galatians 5, how does Paul describe a life that is filled with the Spirit? Is it with tongues? Is it with prophecies? Is it, is it with miracles? No. It's a contrast to the works of the flesh. Paul tells us what a life filled with the Spirit looks like. It's a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what a life that is filled with the Spirit will look like. The other thing I want to say is the book of Acts is largely descriptive, meaning it tells us what happened at that point in time. Not prescriptive, meaning that we should expect all of these things to happen today. And I think that's especially true in what we sometimes call the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. Things like speaking in tongues or, or prophesying, seeing visions, or, or miracles being done by the hand of someone. The belief of our church, and, and, and what I hold to as well, is we would be called cessationists. Meaning that these extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit ended with the apostolic age, when the apostles passed on. However, we do acknowledge that God is free and able to work in whatever way he chooses at what any point in time. And there might be an instance in a time or place where these gifts are used as God wants them to be. But it will always be in line with the revealed word of God that's already been given to us. Meaning that there won't be any new or extra revelation that's given to us outside of the existing word of God. And this has been the view of the church all over the world for almost 2,000 years, with the exception of the last 100 years or so, with the rise of the charismatic movement. Now, if you want to talk more about the theology and biblical thinking behind that, I'd be happy to talk with you about that at any, any time, because it gets into a deep subject. So I'm not going to try to cover a very broad subject in a very limited amount of time, but I would be happy to talk to you about that. The other thing I want us to know about the Holy Spirit is, just as our salvation is secure, so is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We never lose the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We may grieve the Holy Spirit because of, of sin or those locked doors in our life, but this, we are forever sealed and we still possess the Holy Spirit. He does not leave us. We also read in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we can quench the Spirit and we can inhibit His working in our lives, again, because of the presence of sin. But we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we open those areas back up to him and allow him to work. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to actually turn to this. It's in 2 Peter 1. Um, and we're going to look at uh, verses 3 through 10. And Peter makes an argument that's very similar to Galatians 5 in this second epistle. And I, and I really love this passage of Scripture. It starts in verse 3. His divine power, meaning God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us exceedingly great and precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every supplement... Excuse me. Make every effort to, effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, 
and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So ordinary people can have an extraordinary impact through being filled with the Spirit. Just as we preach faith for justification, we preach faith for sanctification and spiritual growth. And that's one of the things that Peter is making the, the, the statement of there, is it all starts with faith. Faith is the basis of this, and that we build on that to live more like the Spirit. One person once said, we don't need more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to have more of us. Our final scene uh, that Luke writes of is in Acts 19, 11 through 20. And we've got quite a dramatic scene of people being healed from Paul's sweat towels while he was working to an exorcism gone horribly wrong by misusing the name of Jesus. And I don't want us to focus on the miracles or the exorcism. However, I want us to focus on the results of this scene from verses 17 through 20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The final thing I want us to see is for ordinary people to have an extraordinary impact in this world is we need to be faithful to surrender. Faithful to surrender. Ephesus, like many cities of its day, was open to the worship of many gods, but one that we read about in particular in the rest of chapter 19, Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, while I would love to go into significant detail about this since I wrote a paper about it in seminary, I'll just mention that it dominated pretty much everything in the Ephesian life from protection and women and childbirth, to hunting, to battle, to, to help her just about in every area of life one can think of. There was, there was a prayer to Artemis. Ephesians were very proud of her temple, which is, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it, was, it had a giant marble hall made up of 127 marble columns, each 60 feet high, which made it four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. In short, Artemis was a source of identity, <coughs> and comfort and protection for the Ephesian people. Now, we may not see ourselves in verses 18 and 19, because I would venture to guess the vast majority of us in this room today don't have books on magic arts and practices related to a specific god or goddess or something like that. But we all do have other things that are our false gods and goddesses that we look to for our identity, our comfort, and our protection in this life. Our work, our bank account, our homes, our intellect, the abilities that we have, our social status, the entertainment that we like to partake in, our reputation, how many likes we get on social media, who's the president, what party controls Congress, what laws are going to be passed, and so on. And while none of these are necessarily bad things on their own, they become their own version 
of these magical arts and practices as we seek to hold onto them so tightly and at the same time declare our faith and trust in an almighty and sovereign God. We're essentially declaring that God's got not enough, that we need God for something else for our fulfillment and identity and protection in this life. It's quite clear in verse 18 that these were indeed new believers in the gospel, yet they were holding on to something else. But upon seeing the power of the Lord Jesus over, over everything else that came at them, they came to confess and to get rid of their idols and practices. And that as a result, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in that area because of that. And it cost them something to do it. It wasn't cheap. The total value of what was burned, 50,000 pieces of silver, someone calculated that and, and that it was a yearly wage with no days off of 137 workers. So it was a quite a significant cost for these people to give that up. For Ephesian women, this was particularly significant to give this up. This meant trusting God with their lives as they gave birth instead of their prayers and sacrifices to Artemis, who was the protector of women in labor. So I just asked simply this morning, what are we holding on to in addition to God? What are the magical arts and practices, the false gods and goddesses that are in our lives that we won't let go of, that we hope that will provide security and fulfillment in our lives? It may be something costly that we have to give up, either financially, emotionally, or psychologically, something we're holding on to from our past. But if we want to see the word of the Lord prevail mightily in our lives, in, in our church, in our society, and in the world as a whole, We've got to purge these idols from our life, whatever the cost of it is, and repent and turn to Jesus Christ. As we teach often here, the walk of the Christian life is a consistent walk of repent and believe. <coughs> repent and believe. And we need to be faithful in doing so. This morning we've seen three things of how ordinary people can make an extraordinary impact. Number one, be fervent in service. No matter who you are, where you are, or what you do, you can make a difference in the church and you can serve God with the gifts that God has given to you. Second, we need to be filled with the Spirit to say no to the flesh and yes to the Holy Spirit and live out the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in this day and age, that list of the fruit of the Spirit, you will stand out mightily as someone who has love and joy and peace and so on. And third, be faithful to surrender. We need to purge from our life those things that we're holding on to in addition to God for our comfort and security and identity. I love this quote from Matthew Henry, um, an old-time commentator, as it encapsulates really all three of these points. He made this statement. If we desire to be earnest in the great work of salvation, every pursuit and enjoyment must be given up, which hinders the effect of the gospel upon the mind or loosens its hold upon the heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for, for faithful servants who have gone before us, who have ministered to us, who have, who have brought us up in your word. I pray that we follow their example in the way that they have followed you uh, previously. May we search our hearts, and may we find those things that we're still holding on to, and may we surrender those things to you so that we can serve you greater, make a greater impact for you in this church and in our community. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.